0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Upper Room. All right, well, after Jesus rose from the dead, he knew that it was time to go home. He had accomplished his mission on the earth, right? And so now it's time for him to ascend back to the right hand of the Father up in heaven. And so on the great day of the ascension... Of Jesus Christ, the disciples, they gathered around him for some final instructions. They gathered around him, and Jesus had these last words to say to them. It was the verse that we, we ended on last week. And so Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the who comes upon you? The when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the very last words that Jesus spoke before his ascension were all about the Holy Spirit. Now previously, in the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you the truth, and they're bummed out, they're sad, they're crying, he's going away, and he says, no, 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 wipe your tears, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so the time had come in our Bibles, where we are right now in Acts chapter one, between verses eight and nine, the time has come for Jesus to go away. And for the Spirit to come, for Christ to ascend, and for the Spirit to descend and come upon the disciples and fill them to overflowing, empowering them to be effective witnesses of Christ throughout the Roman Empire. And so today we're going to pick it up in verse 9 as we continue our verse-by-verse study. And it says, And when Jesus had said these things, these things about the coming of the Holy Spirit... As they, the disciples, were looking on, can you imagine this? He was lifted up. I mean, for 40 days and 40 nights, he had appeared and disappeared, appeared and disappeared. But now this is different. Now he's just like defying the laws of gravity and he's just going up before them. So they know this is different. And so as they're looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him, out of their sight. And so the ascension of Jesus Christ is is, is a really big deal in the New Testament, in the Bible. It's such a big deal that the ascension of Jesus Christ is mentioned at least 20 times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. So if you're brand new to the faith, new to church, what is the ascension? Here it is. The ascension is the homegoing of Jesus Christ Christ. When he returned to heaven, please notice this. This is one of the essential truths of the true Christian faith. When he returned to heaven in his resurrected body, ladies and gentlemen, it is the cults that believe that Jesus just rose spiritually. But Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the same body that they nailed to a tree that that body came walking out of the tomb, risen from the dead. And so he returned to heaven in his resurrected body and he sat down at the father's right hand in victory. That is the ascension. Now, can you imagine what Jesus Christ experienced during his ascension? As he goes up, it says that they're looking at him and looking at him and looking at him. He's going higher and higher and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, but then what happened? You know, can we just kind of do a sila here? How many of you guys read through the Psalms? Let me see your hands. How many of you guys recognize the word sila? Leave your hands up if you do. How many of you guys have no idea what that word means? Some of you don't know what it means. I'll tell you right now. It means push the pause button. It means meditate on this. Take some time and think about it. So can we do that this morning about the ascension of Jesus Christ? Here he goes. This is a a big truth in the Bible. He's going up, 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 up. A cloud takes him out of their sight. But then what happens? Well, then he keeps going up through the clouds, past the stars, at some point leaving our material universe and entering into heaven's realm. And as Jesus Christ, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, as he's making his way to the throne of God, I believe that there's millions of angels (laughs) clapping and cheering him as he's on his way back to the Father. And I don't know what they said. Perhaps the angel said something like this. You did it, (laughs) right? Man, your desire to... Restore to mankind what Adam and Eve lost in the garden. You did it. Now it's going to occur. Your plan to redeem them by your blood and to reunite them with the Father so that they can get back what Adam lost. Namely, fellowship and friendship with God. You made the way. You did it. Thank you, Jesus, all who trust in you will one day in their new bodies stand on a new earth under a new heaven and they'll be co-heirs with Christ forever and ever in a new creation. Yes, you did it. You accomplished your mission. Praise the Lord. They had to have had a party in heaven. I mean, does anybody disagree with this? This is the ascension of Jesus Christ. They had to have had a party. They had to be excited. Do you know why a lot of Christians think the Bible and Christianity is boring? The reason why is because they don't realize how bad the bad news is and how good the good news is. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, here's the bad news. We're a fallen race. We have sinned against a holy God who created us. And the wages of sin is death. And we're destined to life without God in a place called hell. But God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. And he accomplished his mission. And he's now on his way back to the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, there was a party in heaven. And as he went past the gates of pearl and down the streets of gold, and there he is approaching the throne of God. I don't know, but maybe he said, Father, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, it's done. Paid in full. What joy Christ must have experienced when he saw his father. I mean, and why did he leave 33 years before this? Right? Why did he leave the right hand of God where he enjoyed the glory of heaven? Why did he leave about 33 years earlier and come to this fallen, sin-sick world? Well, the reason that he did it was for joy. Joy. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. He reminds all of us, by the way, Christianity is not a sprint, it is a marathon. So pace yourself, <laughs> because we really want you in this church to be lifelong followers of Christ. All the way till you take your last breath, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? Jesus. Jesus. Can everybody say Jesus? Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, it always has been and always will be about him. The world's got a lot of different things. They're trying to take your attention, a lot of different theories, a lot of different um, uh, issues, a lot of different um, uh, ways Listen, what is our way? Our way is the way, the truth, and the life. He's Jesus. As long as you stick with Jesus, he's number one in your life, you're going to be okay. Don't get distracted by the world. Don't even listen to what they have to say. Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy. There's the reason right there. For who the... For, um, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, now that the ascension has taken place, the right hand of the throne of God. And so why did Jesus endure the shame of the cross? Why did he allow people to spit on him and beat him? Why did he allow them to nail his hands and feet to a tree, to a cross? Why? Here's why. Joy. Because he knew that he would have the joy of redeeming you with his blood and giving you eternal life. And he knew that he would have the joy of returning to his father and being able to say mission accomplished. The ascension is a big deal. And so the ascension has taken place. It's over. But the disciples are still looking up into the sky. Why? They've got work to do. (laughs) And so let's find out what happens in verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Okay, angel alert in your Bible. (laughs) Verse 11, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, here it is, will come (laughs) in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, that leads us to our next point, and that is that Jesus will return to the earth the same way he left, what is that? Literally and visibly. That's what we read just, just now. Now sadly, the Jehovah Witnesses Do not believe this truth. The people who knock on your door, who are so relentless every Saturday trying to push their Watchtower magazine upon you, you need to know that they believe the second coming of Christ already occurred. They believe that Jesus Christ came back to the earth in 1914. Have you heard this? (laughs) That he came back to the earth in 1914 spiritually and invisibly. And so they add that error to their many other er errors Errors which include the fact that they deny the triunity of God. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. They deny the distinct personhood of the Holy Spirit. They deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They deny the reality of hell and if I had time I could go on and go on. Now, because the Jehovah Witnesses deny these essential truths of the Christian faith, they are correctly classified as a cult. It's the bottom line. And so the truth is, just as Jesus Christ ascended literally and visibly from the Mount of Olives, so he is coming back to the same place and in the same way. This is what the Bible teaches, Old and New Testament. Check out what Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, said. He said, on that day... His feet will stand on what? The Mount of Olives. What mountain did he just ascend from? The Mount of of Olives. Olives. He's coming back to the same place the same way. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And when that happens, and by the way, I'll be standing on that mountain this May with a group of 50 people from this church. And I'm sorry, those who are clapping, they're like so excited to go. And those of you who are not going are thinking, I wanna go. (laughs) Well, we go every two years. So you can go with us. But this May, a group of 50 people and myself will be standing on this mountain and I'll pull out my Bible and I'll remind them of this verse that one day this mountain, something's gonna happen. Here it is. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. Ladies and gentlemen, he's coming back literally and visibly to the same place the same way. Jesus, concerning his own second coming, says this. He said, in those days after that tribulation, you know, we know that's a seven-year period. We already studied it last year or two years ago in the book of Revelation. Revelation. And so in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And then they will, you tell me the next five words. Okay, it doesn't sound like he came back in 1914 invisibly and spiritually. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. John confirms this in the book of Revelation when John writes, behold, he's coming with the clouds and how many eyes will see him? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Because remember, he's coming back to Israel to save Israel from the battle of Armageddon when all nations are gathered to wipe Israel off the map. Have we heard this before? But even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And so make no mistake, when Jesus comes, ladies and gentlemen, everybody's gonna know, okay? Now, verse 10. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. It's a little less than a mile away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Okay, so we're gonna talk about the upper room for a little while here. And so they go into the upper room where they were staying. All right, let's, let's, let's count them down. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas, the son of James. That's 11 men. Verse 14, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? Prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so the Lord told the disciples back in verse four, I want you guys to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the father. What was the promise of the father? The coming of the Holy Spirit, which we're gonna tackle next week in our verse-by-verse study in Acts chapter two. Stay in Jerusalem, guys. Wait for the promise of the father. So what do they do? They're on the Mount of Olives They turn west. They walk down the western slope of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. They go into the city of Jerusalem and they go up into an upper room. All right, so who was in the upper room? Luke, the author of Acts, just told us. The 11 apostles, the women, Jesus' mother, and Jesus' half-brothers. All right, so let's, let's tackle all four of these. First of all, there's 11 apostles 11, not 12. Okay, so you tell me, why is there not 12 apostles in the upper room? Yeah, Judas Iscariot has already committed suicide by this point in the Bible. And then it says, secondly, the women were in the upper room. No doubt this includes Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, um, Martha and Mary from Bethany, Uh, Salome, the mother of James and John. I'm sure she's up there, along with perhaps some of the apostles' wives. We know Peter was married. And so Jesus' mother was also there. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but this is the last mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus in the New Testament. And by the way... What you need to know is that nowhere in the New Testament does it say that, the, that at the end of Mary's life, she was taken up bod, uh, body and soul into heaven. It's just not in the book. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we believe as Christians what the Bible teaches, and that is when a blood-bought, born-again Christian takes their last breath, absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. So that means that you have a bright future in front of you if you know the Lord. You take your last breath, but guess what? Your spirit immediately goes to be with Jesus. There is no soul sleep. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Your spirit immediately goes to be with Jesus Christ, but your body goes down into the ground, either cremated or buried, however you decide to do that, is between you and the Lord, and your body remains in the ground until the end of the age and the resurrection. The Roman Catholic Church says, not so for Mary. But at the end of Mary's life, she was assumed or taken up body and spirit straight up into the presence of God. And so the doctrine of the assumption of Mary was added later by the Roman Catholic Church It was not made an official dogma of the church until 1950 by Pope Pius XII. And so what I'm I'm sharing with you right now, this is where we are in the Bible, we're talking about Mary. What I'm sharing with you right now is another example of how the Roman Catholic Church believes that scripture and sacred tradition have equal authority As to what we should believe, but we are evangelical Christians. Therefore, we do not believe that scripture and sacred tradition are equal authorities. No, we believe that the Bible, the scripture alone is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. We stand with the Protestant reformers in their cry, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And so even though there may be a group of bishops that get together, the magisterium, and even though the Pope may agree with what they're saying, and he may speak ex cathedra, infallibly is what they believe, that the Pope speaks infallibly when he speaks about Christianity. Listen, even though they believe that, well, they believe that, we do not. And so we believe Mary was chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah, why? Because the Bible says so. And therefore, Mary is such an awesome example for us to follow. Her faith, her purity, her devotion to God. Absolutely. But we should not be adding teachings about her that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about. And so Mary was in the upper room. And please notice that they were all praying. Isn't that what verse 14 says? they're all with one accord and they're devoting themselves to prayer. Now, did you notice it doesn't say the disciples are praying to her. It says that she is praying with them to the Lord. And so ladies and gentlemen, this is part of my job as your pastor is to speak the truth in love. Okay, and so here's what I'm saying. If you have 10,000 Catholics around the world and they're all praying to Mary at the same time, what are they doing? They're ascribing to Mary the attributes of God. Only an almighty God can sit in heaven and receive the prayers of millions of people, understand those prayers, and answer those prayers. Why? Because only God is omniscient. Only God is all-knowing, okay? And so, hey, we honor Mary, absolutely, but we don't elevate her to a place that I think she would absolutely be embarrassed if she knew that she has been elevated to. And so the 11 apostles were there, the women were there, Jesus' mother was there, And notice that Jesus' half-brothers were in the upper room as well. I say half-brothers because Jesus shared the same mother with his little brothers, but he did not share the same father with his little brothers. Ladies and gentlemen, after Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary... You need to know that Mary and Joseph consummated the marriage and according to Matthew 13, 55, together they had James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, Jesus' four little half-brothers. Ladies and gentlemen, having sex is not dirty or perverted when it's done within the confines of holy matrimony. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant. So of course, Mary and Joseph consummated the marriage after Jesus was born. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Joseph, we don't know what happened to him. Simon, we don't know what happened to him. But James the little half brother of Jesus, he became the lead pastor of the mega church, the church of Jerusalem, which we're gonna study here in the, in the first uh, few chapters of the book of Acts. And not only that, he wrote the letter of James in the back of your New Testament. Jude, I mean, you think I'm passionate about, about truth? Jude makes me look mellow. <laughs> you read the little epistle of Jude at the end of your New Testament. And that's, again, Jesus' little half-brother and he was on fire for the Lord and for the truth. But it wasn't always that way. You see the bad news about Jesus' brothers? John 7, verse five says that during the ministry of Jesus, they did not believe in their big brother as Messiah. And not only that, but in Mark chapter three, verse 21, it says that Jesus' little brothers thought that Jesus had gone loopy. They thought he was crazy. They wanted to go bring him back home to Nazareth. What is he doing? He's gonna get in trouble. And so they didn't believe in him and they thought he was crazy. But how many of you are glad for the grace of God? Right? Because after the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he appears to his little half brothers. And I, you've heard me say this before. I mean, I would love to have been there Because there's James and there's Jude. And all of a sudden Jesus walks in and their eyes are like, what in the world? Our big brother is the Messiah. And he's like, hey, check it out. I'm alive. Get over here. Right? I mean, they're brothers, of course. And so, hey, guess what? Jesus' little half brothers become a type of Israel in the last days. Because Israel in the last days, they're in the land. All nations are coming to try to wipe them off the map. And all of a sudden, look up. Oh, it's the one Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, whom we pierced, coming to save us. And Romans eleven twenty six 26 says, in that day, the Israel of the last days, all Israel shall be saved. All right, so what were they doing in the upper room? It says in verse 14, if you'll look at it again, please, that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And so, a very important point here, if you're taking notes, and that is that in the upper room, the disciples were unified. So, everybody say unified, unified. and prayerful. Please say prayerful. prayerful. This is the atmosphere, the environment of the upper room, unity and prayer. And so first of all, let's tackle their unity. Did you know that their unity that they're experiencing in the upper room is very different than what we read about in the gospels? This is a big change. Do you guys remember in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? What's one of the things that the disciples are always doing? Arguing, I'm the greatest. No, I am. I'm gonna have the highest position in the kingdom. No, I am. Well, Jesus likes me better than you. No, he doesn't. Bam, bam, bam. But now, since the resurrection and since the ascension of Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden they're getting along. And I say, praise God for that. That's what churches need, by the way. You know why churches stay so small? It's because there's so much infighting and gossip and backstabbing And people are so focused on all the infighting and gossip and backstabbing that they're not going out to fulfill the great commission so they stay us four no more. The Bible says in Psalm 133, verse one, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That's what we need as a church. John 15, 12, Jesus said to his disciples, this is my commandment, love one another as I have loved you. And so this is what they're experiencing now in the upper room. And and by the way, I'll touch on this in a little while. They're setting themselves up in Acts one for the blessing of God in Acts two. They're unified, they're praying. Now, one of the reasons why why their unity was so essential is because they were praying. I'll ask you a question. Do you think God would regard their prayers if they were still at each other's throats? No. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, some of you may be wondering why your prayer life is so dry. Some of you may be asking yourselves why God seems like a million miles away. Could it be? I'm not saying it is. But could it be because you have offended or sinned against your brother or sister and you haven't sought reconciliation with them? Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and then... I'm sorry, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so this becomes a homework assignment for some of you in the congregation today. Because you know you've offended a brother or sister, you know you've sinned against them and you haven't sought reconciliation. And so your homework assignment is to leave your gift at the altar, so to speak, and go seek reconciliation. Humble yourself. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to admit when we're wrong, but listen, they set themselves up in Acts one for a blessing in Acts two. If you want that blessing, then you'll obey the Lord. And you might say, well, you know, what if I try to reconcile and they put the wall up? You've tried, you're clear before the Lord. Forgive them from your heart and just move on, but you should still seek um, reconciliation and so in the upper room they were unified and they were prayerful and god's about to answer their prayers in just 10 days the holy spirit of god is going to descend from heaven it's going to fill them to overflowing with love and wisdom and power and strength and so uh, if you're with me right now say amen All right, so Acts 1, upper room, Acts 2, coming of the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 1, the disciples make sure their vertical relationship with God is clear and their horizontal relationships with men as best to their ability is clear. And so now they've set themselves up for God to bless their socks off in Acts 2. And it's the same thing with us. If we will just humble ourselves and make sure that we're right with God and make sure the best of our ability, we're right with our brothers and sisters, we will set ourselves up for a blessing as well. Amen? Amen. Okay, so verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So this is a very large upper room, unless they move to another room somewhere. But it says in verse 16 that Peter says this Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Stop right there, everybody. Look at me. There's one of the classic verses in the Bible. For the inspiration and inerrancy of the Word of God, the Bible. Right there, we just read it. Look at it again. Which the Holy Spirit, please say Holy Spirit, Spirit. spoke beforehand by the mouth of, everybody say David. David. The Holy Spirit came upon holy men of God and they spoke and they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, in this context, we're talking about David who wrote the Psalms. And so when you read the Psalms, you can be assured this is breathed out by God. This book is not like any other book in the whole world. And it's not just the Psalms. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. And so we see that the Holy Spirit is the author behind the authors of the word of God. Does this make sense to you guys? Okay, so trust your Bible. Brothers, Peter standing before 120 people. The scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now many scholars believe right now in verses 18 through 19, Luke, the author of Acts, puts in a parenthetical statement for those who don't know who Judas is. All right, so verse 18, we push pause button on Peter's address to the 120. It says now in verse 18, Luke tells us, now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It's a great verse right before lunch. <laughs> and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadamah, that is the field of blood. And so after Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, you need to know that Judas was very remorseful. He was sorry. But here's the bad news. Judas' remorse was a worldly grief, not a godly grief. Now, if you kind of been half listening up to this point, I wanna ask you to really listen because this is as practical as it gets in church, ladies and gentlemen. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? Okay, so Paul says there's two kinds of grief. There's a godly grief and there's a worldly grief. One leads to salvation, the other leads to death. And so what's the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? The answer, I have it underlined, it's the R word that you hardly ever hear in churches anymore. It's repentance, repentance. That's the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Repentance, and that difference can be seen when you compare the life of Judas with the life of Peter. Now stay with me here, listen. Peter, what, what does he do? He blows it. He denies Jesus, not once, not twice. He denies Jesus three times. And after that third denial, right? I don't know the man, blankety-blank, and then cock-a-doodle-doo, right? And all of a sudden, at that very moment, here comes Jesus coming out of the high priest's house, all beat up, and his eye catches Peter's eye. And Peter, the Bible says in Luke chapter 22, went out and wept bitterly. Peter felt so bad about what he'd done. But the good news is Peter experienced a godly grief that produced repentance. How do you know? because he's the second (laughs) main character in the book that we're gonna study this year, this guy successfully serves the Lord for the rest of his life. Judas, on the other hand, he betrays the Lord Jesus Christ. And afterwards, after he sees what they do to him, he feels sorry. And he goes back to the temple, back to the chief priest with the 30 pieces of silver. And he says, and I quote, I have sinned. That's what Judas said. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Take your money back. And they're like, uh-uh, we're not taking that money back. And he throws it down on the ground. Now, the sad part is that Judas's grief was a worldly grief. And it led to death. It did not lead to repentance. What was the result? He died in his sins. And his life ended in tragedy. And so godly grief produces, everybody say repentance. Peter, that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, Judas, produces death. And so what we have to understand is when we sin, I didn't say if we sin, but when we sin. By the way, how many sinners are in the house? I'll raise my two hands again. Right? hey, listen, you cannot be saved till you admit you're lost. Stop trying to work your way to heaven. You'll never get there. It's by the blood of Jesus. So when we sin against the Lord, it's not enough to just feel sorry for our sins. right? how many parents, you know, your, your, your little boy goes and hits his little sister and then you say, Go say you're sorry. I don't want to. Go say you're sorry. Sorry. And then when you turn your back. <laughs> and, and, and you think because you made them say sorry that you're biblically parenting. You're not. Here's an idea. Um, discipline them and then make them go and say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? You say, they'll pitch a fit. Who's bigger? Who's the parent? Stop trying to be your kid's friend. Start being their parent. <laughs> Discipline them. Otherwise, all you're gonna do is ra- raise a rebel is gonna end up in jail somewhere hurting somebody. Be a parent. Now, let's think about this for a little while, okay? I mean, there's nothing going on tonight anyway, right? <laughs> let's just, just, just really think about this with me. Okay, this is, this is so important right here, what I'm about to say. Many people sin and they feel sorry, they feel remorseful because now they've got to endure the consequences, right? Oh man, I, I just committed a crime and I got caught. Ooh! I got to go do time, five years in jail. Ah. Or I, I, I cheated on the test and I got expelled from school. I feel so bad. I was driving drunk and I killed somebody or I was texting and I killed somebody. Now I feel bad. Okay, you feel bad. Here's the question though. Where's the Repentance. It's not enough to feel sorry just because the consequences are coming, crashing down on your head. That's a worldly grief that'll lead to death. You gotta find some repentance in there somewhere. And so, hey, I remember this person who remained anonymous sitting across from me in a counseling session, bawling because of the sin this person committed. And I asked this person, Basically this, are these tears of repentance or tears of remorse? Right, time will tell. And so ladies and gentlemen, it's one thing to sin and then feel bad because of the consequences coming crashing down on you. It's a whole other thing to sin and feel bad because you sinned against a holy God who loves you. Do you guys see the difference? That was so good, I'm gonna say that again. (laughs) If you're with me, say amen. Amen. It's one thing to sin and feel bad because consequences are coming down on you. It's a whole other thing to sin and feel bad because you hurt the heart of a God who loves you. (laughs) Worldly grief leads to death. Godly grief leads to repentance and salvation without regret. And so Matthew chapter 27 tells us that Judas hung himself if you didn't know that already. And by the way, what I'm about to say here is why we have a children's ministry, one of the reasons why, because you know, it's an adult Bible study and a lot of times it's R-rated. And so we have an awesome, amazing children's ministry. We have three people on paid staff that pour their self into your kids. And probably I think, um, Pastor Will, almost a hundred volunteers over there? 120 volunteers over there. We we pour our heart and soul. Listen, we pour our heart and soul to be able to teach Jesus and the Bible on their level. Let them go over there where it's a little lighter and they can learn about Jesus on their level in a G-rated atmosphere. But nonetheless, uh, Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself. And according to Luke's parenthetical statement, which we just read, we know that as his body is hanging, that at some point in the process of the body decomposing, right, it probably begins to bloat because of gases. And then either the branch breaks or the rope snaps, and then Luke tells us in verse 18, please look at 18, halfway down, verse 18. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Now I read that and I think that's, that's pretty tragic. It's tragic because we're talking about a guy who walked with Jesus for three years, who ate with Jesus for three years who listens to the teachings of Jesus for three years, who walked around God's people called the disciples for three years. And yet at the very end of his life, he hardens his heart against Jesus, does not believe he's the Messiah of Israel. And he goes to his, as Peter's gonna say later, own place, he goes to hell. And some people that they're bothered by that, How do you know he went to hell? It's so clear, ladies and gentlemen. He's called the son of perdition in the Bible. Jesus says, I chose 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. Jesus said it'd been better if he had never been born. Okay, Judas is in hell. He's still there today and there's no getting out. Worldly grief leads to death. There was no repentance, there was no change. There was no accepting Jesus as Messiah. Even though he was around Christ and Christ's teachings and Christ's people for the better part of three years. Now, it still happens today. Our church continues to grow. A couple weeks ago, we actually had 2,000 people here. And so, when you think about that, it's heavy upon me as a pastor because we have 30 to 40 visitors that come in here. And here's what I know, in a crowd this size, there's some people you love the Lord, you're devoted, you're like Peter, and there's other people you're just here because either your parents drug you here or you're, you're trying to please your spouse, but your heart's really not into this. You're, you're tuning me out. You don't really believe that Jesus lifted off and went up into the right hand of God, where's that? And let me just say, Today, if you hear his, hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Hell is real. And Jesus came and paid it all and paid his blood so you would never have to go there, so you could live forever, so you could have a resurrected body and be co-heirs with him forever and ever and have friendship and fellowship with God. Do not pass up this good news so you can live for yourself. Don't be a Judas, be a Peter. Amen? All right. So we're almost done here, but, but now we're going back to Peter's address. I want you to picture this in your mind. He's standing before 120 people, and he's talking about how Judas has to be replaced as an apostle. And he says in verse 20, for it was written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. He's, Peter's Uh, uh, quoting Psalm 69, uh, 25. This is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about Jesus in the Old Testament. And so by the Holy Spirit's leading and prompting, He, he applies this to Judas. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And Psalm 109, verse eight, let another take his office. Peter says in verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these, my men, must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And so Peter, what does he do here? He gives two qualifications to be an apostle to replace Judas. The first one is you gotta be a companion of Christ the whole way. So from the baptism of John, about three years, until the ascension of Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because ladies and gentlemen, apostles were there. They were eyewitnesses. They heard the voice of Jesus. Everybody, please look at me. Jesus, apostles, you and me. <laughs> we're under their authority. And thank God somebody wrote it down. and We have the New Testament. There is not an apostolic succession. They died. We have the New Testament. We go by the word of God. And so this person had to have been there from the baptism of John until the ascension of Jesus Christ to receive the teachings of Christ as an apostle. That's qualification number one. Qualification number two, they had to have seen Jesus alive after he had died. They had to see the resurrected Christ. And by the way, quick side note, the apostle Paul, who I think is the greatest teacher of Christianity since Jesus Christ, he learned personally from Jesus in Arabia. I'm, I'm going to Galatians one, I think right now, not Saudi Arabia, but around Damascus, Syria, out in the desert. Scholars believe for about three years, interesting. And he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter nine. So Paul absolutely bona fide, 100%, an apostle. And nonetheless, Peter does what he does here And and I, I personally, people disagree. I think God is in this. And so look at verse 23. It says, and they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Okay, so can you picture it? There's in the front of 120 people, there's Joe and Matt, they're standing there. And it says in verse 24, and they prayed and they said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. That's interesting. You'll never see that again in the New Testament. They cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so you need to know that in Old Testament times, casting lots, same thing as rolling dice or drawing straws. Man, the Old Testament, it's over and over and over and over and over again. God's people cast lots to determine the will of God. But guess what? You never see casting lots ever again. So even though I personally, and there's a debate among evangelicals, I think this is legit because this is all they knew. And I really believe Matthias was an apostle, but here's what you need to know. We're done with casting lots, that's Old Testament stuff. And now we're getting ready next week to get to Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit of God comes and descends upon them. And from that day forward, they don't cast lots anymore. The spirit of truth leads them into all truth. As they pray, as they fast, and as they worship, they determine the will of God. So Old Testament times, cast your lots. New Testament times, you need to, if you're trying to get God's will this week, you need to pray. If you're medically able, ask your doctor, you need to fast and you need to worship the Lord. And when you're in that environment, Acts 1 through four, the spirit of God will speak and he'll direct you into all truth. If you got a decision to make this week, Don't pull out the dice, okay? God's not in that anymore. Trust the Holy Spirit, amen? Amen. I love you guys. And um, I'm gonna turn the service over to Pastor Andrew because we have group link and all the group leaders are waiting for you guys. Well, God, uh, God bless you.